0: Attention all mortals, veterans and civilians alike, it's time to buckle up and get ready for a wild ride, because you've just tuned in to the Swan Dingo Files. Your host, Steven Swanson, is here to help you navigate the crazy world of transitioning from military life to civilian life, and let me tell you, it's a bumpy road, but with a little bit of humor and a lot of determination, we can make it through together. Yep. Another physical fitness. I'm getting
1: back into it. <laughs> and welcome back to Swan Dingo Files. Here, here today is Mike Damon, another fellow fellow veteran who's crushing on the outside. How's it going today, Mike?
0: Outstanding. Absolutely amazing.
1: Well, today we're going to talk about uh, why you joined the military. You know, I know you're in the Marines first, so we won't hold that against you too much. Then, uh, then we'll talk about what you did in the military, your transition out, and. How you're crushing it today and making all your money. So wanna begin? Uh so why did you join the military?
0: Um, I joined out of a whim. I was uh I I I was uh taking my second stab at twelfth grade and uh I said, What am I gonna do for the next four years or six years or eight years? I had no future, had no plans. And uh the real the the, the, recruiter dropped the phone. He says, hi, I'm gives me the speech for the nice. States breaker. I'm sorry. I'm so and all of a sudden he goes, well, think you want to come in. my was and good, you just try to, you know, get in the speech real quick. And I said, yeah, sure. So it's good. He goes, what? <laughs> and so I said, Hey, if I'm going to join, I'd already had a brochure in front of me. If I was, I'd had no, see, I had my, my stepfather and my father were great guys. They were great men that taught me how to be a man. And I said, I'm not really a man. Unless I got some goals or something I need to do. I need to accomplish something. And, uh, I was going to go to college. I wanted to go with uh, the air traffic control, because I heard they made a lot of money. You know, there was no reason. And I said, yes, yeah, sure. I'll join. I'll join. And they dropped the phone. It was pretty funny. My life was full of just funny stuff, man. And I, I joined the Marine right Corps on a way. I said, if I got four years and I got to waste it. I got nothing going on. I said, I'll try to be the best, you know, being, being kind of a limpy guy, shy. Zits on my face. I said I'll try to be a Marine. See what happens. I think that's
1: about I think that's about how most kids end up joining the military, zits on their face, wimpy guys and all that all that fun
0: stuff, but yeah. Yeah. Fat disgusting civilian. No, yeah. I, I was
1: super skinny and I yeah. joined that only one twenty something. 120 pounds somewhere around there. By the time I was out, I was like almost 170. By the time I did my 16 weeks of OSET training in the army, so yeah. all muscle, no fat. So that was back in the day, though. So that was back in the real military. Today's military, you know, I don't even want to talk about that yet.
0: Hey, it's a pendulum. We're, we're looking back on it and say it's not so good. But this this experiment with inclusive this and that and all that, it's not going to work out well. It's not. It's already- it's not, it's not-
1: it's already not working out well. I don't, I don't know what well, they
0: realize it. You know, guys on girls swim teams. It's not working out well. Even, even the people that are liberals are going, Hey, this is not working out for us. I said, Oh, you are, you wanted it. And I laugh at them, but you know, there's no sense getting some guys, you know, the commentators will scream from the highest rooftop. I'm just looking back, watching the train wreck, smiling while they're all fighting oh. themselves, cleaning up.
1: Well, I'm I'm worried though that we're gonna have a huge mental health issue here in about ten years like universal so we have now. And that's the problem is all these kids and adults that are young adults that are wanting these transitions and all this stuff now, are they gonna turn around in ten to fifteen years and be like Maybe this was the wrong thing for me, which is starting now. That it was the wrong thing. But right. ten to fifteen yeah. years we're gonna be screwed.
0: Well, my friend friend was saying, Hey, pump the brakes. I mean, we're 50 years old, you know, and like, I can't, I'm already adjusting real quick. You know, society's changing. Can we just slow it down a little bit and slowing it down? is a conservative thing just to think change, but to get back on topic is yeah. And I went in the Marine Corps and I was in the reserves and, uh, it was in the night, early nineties. And there was, it was 1990, 89, 90, and there was no jobs. You know, you couldn't, I, for unskilled worker there was no jobs. Hmm. So I was in the reserves and I was, I was, I actually, I loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I don't know what exactly I did. I, I got to be a patriot. I grew up in a small town where, you know, they had like six parades a year, you know, what it was is a suburb of Boston. What happened is there was a great migration after World War II, my grandfather and grandmother being one of them where they used their, their VAGI bill and they bought houses in outskirts of Boston. And uh, the whole town was just full of these old vets. And I thought every town was like that, you know. And we had jets flying over our head all the time because we were right next to a base. Nice. Yeah. And so what I did is I put in a package to go on active duty. And I also read somewhere back then, oh, I read the book, The, book, the Road Less Traveled. And it says in there that 80% of people die within 20 miles of their birthplace. And I said, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that something. So I put in for Japan. I always had a curiosity for Japan, but I, I, I didn't get it. You know, you put your request in and I got Hawaii. I was bummed out, man. Not
1: open, well, that, man. But not about Hawaii? That's I mean
0: no, I'm I, it was it was you know pinch me. Like my whole life is like pinch me. You know what I mean? Whoever thought a dyslectic high school dropout would join the military and write a book in his fifties. I, I come on. And now on his way to financial independence while being disabled. I mean, there's no excuses in my book. I'm disabled. I collect social security and I'm building a empire and I want to share it with everybody and how I recovered from, 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 uh, trauma. So I was in the Marines and luckily, damn, I went for a flight when I was in the reserves on a, on a Huey. I was out there. I like it. Just, I had great opportunities and I, my, one of my, my son says we're, he's like me. He said we're very curious. So out there and I love aircraft, little kid. Like every guy does. I want to be an astronaut, you know, of course. I didn't want to be a fireman. And that's closest to when I was out there looking at the birds, didn't know if I could close. I said, you want to go for a ride? I said, hell yeah. And I flew right through downtown Boston. That was before 9-11, obviously. We flew like, like between the towers. And I said, I'm hooked. How do I get to find these things? Then I joined the I got another helicopter unit because the job I had was an admin job, but I could have been with any of unit. It just lined up for me. And I stood out on that flight line like I was a kid for years. Until one guy said, come on, I'll let you play on my plane, crew chief. And, uh, I was in the Marine Corps and I eventually got to fly. I got my wings. Crossed. Really? Yeah. And wait till I tell you about what's coming up with that. Life comes full circle sometimes if you do the right thing. I'm going back on flight stats as a crew chief on a military helicopter. I'll go. Yeah. It, it, yeah it, now I have to pinch myself again. I got goosebumps thinking about it and we'll go back to the story in a second. I got goosebumps thinking about it and to think that 10 years ago I was going to take my own life because it was, I thought it was that bad. It's not that bad. You, I just needed people to help me. I needed to say I need help first and that was the first step and I got it. And, but what happened in, you know, rewind back to the Marine Corps is before I was flying. I was at uh, Subic Bay on a Westpac. Westpac, of, uh, army guys don't know is most people, most Marine Corps rotate everything to go on six month deployments. Armies usually a year. You go to Korea or Germany. But in Marine Corps, they do six months. But their main thing is quick insertion. So it's like you move everything onto the boat, boat with the helicopters and then you go. And we floated around Japan, Korea. We did all those stops. And well, we were at Subic Bay, the Philippines and a volcano exploded, exploded over us and no one really, I mean, fathom, you know, Oh, you see it on TV or whatever, but no one did anything. And we went out in town and uh fifteen thousand people died that day. Hmm. It was like somebody blew a bomb off. And if anyone googles it, just up Mount Pinatubo and see what it was like. You know, you got that lush jungle that we've all seen, which unless you've experienced a jungle, you don't know how thick that is. to see it all down like uh knee high, destroyed. Baboons running around. It was absolute total chaos. And uh and uh, I saw some things, and I didn't know how badly they had affected me until I was in my, in my 40s. Um, and I went along, and then I came, I got out of the Marine Corps. This is the first time I was homeless. I got out of the Marine Corps, I stayed in Hawaii, and I had my own car. And I was riding around with another buddy in the Marine Corps that got out and stayed in Hawaii. And uh, I was only out for like a couple months. And uh, I had just got laid off from my job and a car cut in front of us and we T-boned them and I hit the dashboard and dislocated my shoulder. Not bad, you know. Um, walked away, but I was in the sling. But then I went to go apply for unemployment and according to unemployment laws, you can't have to be willing to physically able to work. And the lady sitting across from me says, you're not el- eligible for, for uh, unemployment. And I had to give up my apartment. I had a little room and some great guys, um, flying guys. And I felt bad. I said, I can't do this to you. I'm, I'm in recovery and I don't have a job. So even if I was recovered, I can't do a job interview. I got a it up your shoulder. And so I said, all right. So I just couch surfed and my system is in me and I, and, uh, I'm a real good one of my first mentors. And you don't appreciate these people until so they're, they're not with you anymore. I was on a park bench, he showed up to me, and he gave me a book called As a Man Thinketh, by R.B. Allen. And he pointed at me, he says, you're exactly where you put yourself. You know, basically, like Jock O'Well talks about, it, absolute responsibility for it. It was my fault. Of course, when you're down and out, you know, it's not, oh, it's not my fault. It's, it was fate. No, because if I get my shit together, I wouldn't have been in that place, and I had made better decisions. So, uh, my sister surprised me in Hawaii, and uh, I said, "Need a hundred bucks," and I flew back home. And I was met my ex-wife at the time. Everything's great, and I'm walking in the mall, and I see a recruiting booth, you know. And uh, I'd already had missed my brothers, you know what I mean? I like missed the whole thing. And the uh, there's a recruiter, and he had a poster, and it said Hellcat on it. So well, what do you guys do? Just Well, Army. So you have helicopters in the army? I, I didn't, it didn't die on me. You know? we, okay. got most, we got the most,
1: we got the most things that fly in the army. Just to let yeah. you
0: know. What part of the army. There's National Guard. I said, what's that? You know, I'm probably like two years out, or I'm two years out of being there. I said, oh fuck, I'm going to go fly with the army. I mean, helicopters helicopter cool, cool. I signed up. And they wouldn't even let me touch it. It was just weird. They're like, no, you don't have the right MOS, which, the army is very, very specific about the MOSs and in the Marine Corps, it's kind of like, cause they're smaller units usually. Like if you can learn someone else's job, it's like a big pat on the back. You know, like, great. You can stand in for me or I can stand in for you. And in the army, it's very, uh, uh, MOS specific, I would say very strict. Like we don't want you playing on the helicopter. Yeah, you got that badge when you played in the army, but this is different. And so I end up, they said, Oh, and they look at my house, I says, Oh, you think you're smart. And so they, and I found out later, this is what they do in the argument. They find a smart guy. They said, we're going to stick here in Como. Because in Como, no one understands it, really.
1: No, no. I'll, I'll
0: agree yeah, there. Yeah, they had a staff sergeant in there. He was great. So we're talking, this is around 97, 97, 98. And he, uh, he handed me a stack of books. And he says, think you smart. I'm just going to stick to smarty canceled with us. He's still like, here. He says, well, here, gave me a stack of books. I drilled. He came back, and I remember the title of one of the books blew my mind because it was way above my head. Uh Wave propagation, the rules of wave propagation. Then they talked about how you can stick your antenna in the ground, and you can actually bounce the radio waves off the land. Like if you got to go a distance in those buildings and structures, you can actually send the radio waves to the ground. Whoa, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either, and no one's ever done it. So you know. But I understood the basics of how it worked. That I never went to MLS school because they don't have funding. The National Guard's weird. The funding comes from two different sources, so there's quite so many problems in guys' schools. Because I wanted to go to crew chief school, which was 13 months, which is really in the Marine Corps. We did it as OGT on the drop training. Um, yeah, and so I, they just assumed I was a combo. They actually thought I was a medic because one of my best, best friends still is a medic and I'd hang out with the medics all the time because in the army, I was shocked that everyone has a truck. And it's like, your truck is the truck, truck. We walked in the Marine Corps, you know? And, uh, it was kind of cool. And that was a really great experience. I had some great NCOs over there that were just amazing. One of the best commanders yeah. ever was a Captain, an the and colonel. And, uh, and that was like 97, 98. In 2000, my mom, I was married, had my first kid and, uh, my mom passed away and I left the guard in Rhode Island. That was like 60 miles away. And then the war started, hmm. and so I signed up. Down the street, I saw a recruiter, you know, poster for whatever National Guard, and the guy's name at the bottom was my recruiter in Rhode Island, which is sixty miles away. He had moved up to Mass, and I knew it. I pulled right in. That's the war started. I said, "Man, I want to deploy." You know, I had my uh, small business. I was uh, I have a small sign company that I taught myself how to do. after to work in construction, and uh. He said, all right, this, this unit right here is deployed in nine months, 12 months. Great. And I uh, end up doing two deployments of the army, 0506 to Abu Ghraib. We closed Abu Ghraib. It was just the most lovely place in the whole world. And then I went over then in 910 and I worked, uh, I was a, a gunner. Oh, this is a cool, funny story. Again, Mike's life. So I go to deploy in 05, and the commander gets the undeplo- unde- undeployable list. In the, in the National Guard, it's really weird. They'll, they'll get a mission, and then kind of what's cool is they can pick who they want to go on. They're they don't to deploy back then. So they would tell people from all over the states, and you had some really high-speed guys going. You know, one one of my buddies was a ranger, and the, another guy was a Gulf vet. and there was actually a guy from my same Marie Corps unit in that unit that had left a few years before I did in the, in the 80s. It was just the most bizarre thing. But they go to deploy, and the commander gets a list of undeployable. You're undeployable for medical. You're undeployable for this. And they, my name was on it. And the commander said, hey, uh, you know, here's your list. And he goes, lifts? This guy can't be undeployable. They said, yeah, he's non-MOSQ'd. I never went to an Army school. But at the time, is being a Marine, and I knew 50 cows because I was an aerial gunner on things, in the National Guard, those things are like, archived, the 50 cows. I took them out and we repaired them all. You know, and worked them all and boiled them up and everything. They wouldn't let anybody, because everyone would put the feet on wrong and screw them up. Back then, no mm-hmm. one them. Or so no one touched them. So I kind of like made a job for myself. And that's key, man, If you don't have, you look at, and I learned this from when I, through my business, a business owner, you find the need and you fill it. That's a basic of business. So I said, well, if they don't know how to do 50s. I'm going to show them. And there was a couple other guys that needed a refresher on it. And I had the manual out. I did it all by the book because it had been eight years since I had touched one. And so when anyway, he comes back to the commander and they said, what do you do? I said, he says, this, this guy's a heavy gun instructor. This guy does all that combo stuff and we got nobody to fill the spot nobody wants to deploy. And this is, okay. So it went all the way up to a full bird and a full bird just, I, my MOS call says this soldier is, you know, exemplary skills or whatever. We grant them this MOS. So they grant you the 31 uniform MOS and out of all my, I love me wall. Okay. That is my most pride that I have is I made a job for myself. I proved that I worked hard and I got an MLS and boys, nice. Yeah. I so, mean, yeah. Go ahead.
1: So, uh, how many years did you end up doing in the army then? 20, were- I, well,
0: combined was 26. Oh, wow. That's yeah.
1: That's a long time.
0: Yeah, it was, but I loved it. You know, and the, the uh, I loved it. It, it. it was, I loved the people. You know, I think like um Chief David Bald Eagle's uh World War Two vet and I served with his son and it was just coming of his son's mouth. He says he says, When you tell the stories, this is while the war was going on. He says when it, time passes, oh I man says, you'll end up talking about the people. Because they're amazing. They're amazing. I wrote a poem about uh I got to walk the streets of Baghdad with heroes. It wasn't me. I had the honor to serve with them. These were young kids, man. I mean, I was in my thirties and these kids are 18, 19 years old. And, and to this day, they still blow my mind on what amazing patriots they are and how well they treat their families, how well they serve their community still to this day. They, it blows my mind. And I was lucky to be able to participate in that. See, that's coming from a part of greatness. When I was at my lowest low, I was ungrateful. You know, it's one of the first things I learned was, was to, to recover was you, Listen, you look back in your life, don't look at the dark stuff. Look at the good stuff. Look at how lucky you are. You know, all of us have served in the greatest army. There is, hasn't been an army like this over the last 30 or 40 years. Oh, and you go back to World War II. Well, since World War II, since the Roman times. Romans. The only people that have ever done that is Romans. But we also weren't an aggressive force on any of this stuff. We were always a defensive force. So we we served in a higher level than even the Romans did. And these are kids. Back then they were bred to do that. We volunteered to do it.
1: Yeah, I was eighteen. So when I went to Iraq two thousand three, four. So Yeah, what year you go in? Say again?
0: What year did you go in? Two
1: thousand three. I joined two thousand two but went in two thousand three. So and then I was in Iraq two thousand three, four. As soon as I left scout school at Fort Knox I went to Fort Riley, my first duty station, the 270th Armor. Uh, it used to be called 70th Tank back in the day. And then when I was at MEP, or not MEP, excuse me, um, yeah, in processing, they told me don't even empty your bags. If you're going to 270th, you're going right over to Iraq. It's like, all right, cool. I'll, that's what I signed up for. So
0: Now, being an old salt, man, coming from the 80s and 90s, right, the late 80s and early 90s, and I seen you guys cross in front of me, absolutely brought tears from my eyes. I couldn't believe it. I thought that if the shit hits the fan, that, that people would run to the hills, you know what I mean? It would be like, kind of like the the middle of Vietnam when it got messy, where people were just like, whoa, I want no part of this. But patriot after patriot lined up and these kids, 19 years old, was sitting next to me and I said, why would you do this? I was I was thinking like that. I said, I wouldn't have done this crap. And, they, and uh, this guy named Chapa, he sees this Chapa, I'll never remember this, He's, uh, I was getting better and, uh, and I looked at him and I was teaching a class because I ended up being a, uh, an instructor at a unit. And I said, and his brother's a Marine and Chap is in the guard. And I said, why, why are you kids doing this? And he looked me dead in the eye and said, it's cause you're tired. And I was like, wow. Thank you. Another gift that if I had taken my own life, I never would have got that gift. One of the greatest gifts I ever got in my life. I'm here for you, brother. I'm here to take the wheel from you and continue on. And then I said, now it's time to retire. And
1: I retired. Uh, so after, when you retired, uh, how long did you prep for retirement? Like, I know some people could take, like, two years to prep and all this other stuff. I and...
0: took them five years to retirement. Holy oh, crap. Well, let me just tell you about my, my second deployment. I got to do 52 combat missions as a lead gunner on 51 of the missions, selected. End up being a PS, one was for a company level and the next was a, a PSD team for, for the, uh, the brigade commander, which was a two star out of Ohio. That's again, pick for right? Like I'm no one special. I'm a regular guy, but someone said, the guy's on the ball. We're going to stick him over here. And I got to the team. they I was all good friends of mine and, uh, the guys were going to leave. So we, we would turn it down because we were turning down a wrap, you know, the 2009 to 10. And the cock is, I was, he goes, Hey old man, what makes you think you can come to my team and just be a gunner? Like it's all cool like that. Howie. And I says, cause I'm the, I truly believed it. And I was, I said, I am the best damn gunner in this country right now. I says, cause I got skills and I've been doing this for friggin' 15 years. He says, okay. And the next time, because I jumped out of the tart and started yelling at people again, fill in the slot, filling the need. I spoke in Arabic to the fucking people that were in the traffic jam. I yelled at them, you know, all square words in air, get all the way, stop, you know, because you know, it's that's weird, their mentalities, they don't, like, thing. you see a traffic jam in America, you stop, but they just try to get around everything, it's really crazy.
1: Yeah, no kidding, I actually yeah. miss being a gunner, I think that was my favorite position out of all of them, uh, 2005 five, six. I was a gunner in Iraq, and I think that was, that's probably my best time, sitting on top of a Humvee, just sitting there, fucking
0: cruising around. I, I felt like a god, like a moment yeah, I have cat. that I can strike down and destroy people with, if they if they hurt my friends. It's pretty a pretty powerful thing. Oh, um, I,
1: oh I did. Trust me, I did. Not oh, I did, so good.
0: Yeah, and some that's most of that's good. Some of it's bad. Um, but you said the transition is I went. What happened is is I had um, well, now I can look back on it, I had a full mental breakdown in 2012. My, I was a strange my wife. My kids were afraid of me. That's what I say. And then I was like, all that shit was underneath. And I said, oh, if I retire, then I'll get the help I need, even though I didn't know what it was. I didn't quite understand if it was PTSD or what it was. But it was like an iceberg. I kept it all into the water on top. And uh, I started just started to go to counseling. And my ex-wife at the time uh, asked for a divorce. Mm. Took all that stuff that stereotypically the vets do drinking too much, and not being home, and taking off, and chasing women, and she got sick of it, I don't mind. Um, and I also realized what I was doing with my kids, and then I decided to help, but then I had a nervous breakdown, my whole life collapsed around me,
1: so what did you seek for your uh, mental breakdown, did you seek any help or anything?
0: Oh, absolutely. My community was huge. It was like a three-pronged attack. There was a guy, his name was Bill Moore, and he was part of a nonprofit. And I worked consulting slash as a production manager at a sign company in the city. And there was a guy from the nonprofit who helped transition invest, because I didn't you need know, help. Um, he saw me. He saw me deteriorate, like, immediately. He's like, we got to get you some services. I know what to do. And then uh, he's got a an organization. I'm going to plug as much as I can. It's Project New Hope. If you live anywhere in the Northeast and even outside the Northeast, they have retreat weekends. And I went to one of those retreat weekends and I started to understand when they started describing, and I was going to the VA too, they, uh, were describing PTSD to me. But when I actually came clean and said, Hey, it was, uh, 2012 Thanksgiving day. I, I said, uh, the weekend after Thanksgiving, I said, Hey, um, that's from my ex-wife and my sister. I said, I'm suicidal. Um, I don't want to live. I was on schedule of deployment to go back to Afghanistan with a lot of guys from my old team. And uh, I was going to step on a grenade or get myself killed because I wanted to kill myself. I didn't want my kids to think I was a coward. So I planned it all out. And I called my own intervention. They didn't believe me. They said, you're just faking it because you're getting into the loss. But that was their perspective. Because the PTSD, I masked the PTSD with being a jerk. Like, hey, we're going to go over here and do this panic thing. Like, I ain't going. But that was the And then I went over to, what really struck me as I lived across the from a supermarket. And I went to the supermarket and I had a panic, my first real big panic attack. And I realized, oh, my God, I haven't been in the supermarket in five years. And I just avoided it all and worked 80 hours a week and plowed snow and just kept busy trying to keep the demons at bed.
1: Yeah, I can definitely relate with that. That was, I mean, I, I went, I did, did deploy to Afghanistan and I did some stupid stuff trying to get killed just because it was, the, I thought of it as a non coward way out. You know, I let the enemy take me and it wasn't a lack of them trying in Afghanistan. They, we we're under attack all the time. But they just sucked at shooting apparently, so, and what, other
0: stuff. Yeah, but just to be clear is because I felt that way doesn't mean I feel that way. I don't think it's cowardly at all. You know, yeah. you got to make that. Choice, but I, I talk to them. It's not, So if you feel that way, there's, see, here's the trick with PTSD, and maybe you can relate to this, is it's a, it's a, it's a sneaky thing. It makes you believe that people don't give a shit about you. That's what my, I felt in my brain, and a lot of guys I talked to. Nobody cares about you. What's the difference if you're here or not?
1: That, yeah, the, and that is part of it too. That's part, the depression part of it is nobody actually think. no, you think nobody cares about you around you when at that time I had, Oh actually I didn't have any kids just at that point. But I mean I got six kids now. Um but at that time I had no kids. I wasn't married anymore. Divorce was in South Korea. Um it, it was a good divorce, so thankfully. Um uh, glad we divorced. It was a bad relationship. But it's just like everything was like starting to cabal and everything and yeah, I just I volunteered out from South Korea to find out find a unit that I was deploying. Hunter First Airborne was deploying and it's like I'm gonna go, cause you know they're gonna go somewhere dangerous, so. And we did, we did, we went somewhere, you know, where Cop copcuting and OP Barry and Battle for One Out won that same area up there. And we're there for the whole year, and they tried to push our shit in several times, but, and it wasn't a lack of them trying to kill us, they just weren't very good at it. But we were also very lucky, and I think, I really think that was part of it. Some Someone was clearly watching over us, cause we had an RPG punched through an MATV. And nobody died. Like it punched through and blew up inside the MATV. And nobody died. I don't know how that happened, but somebody yeah. was clearly looking after us. I mean, it wasn't just that one, but we had several occasions of.
0: Yeah, that's probably one. Yeah, and that's one funny. of the stories you hear. What guys say is, if I was at Abu Ghraib when we were working hand with the prisoners, and the prisoners thought God was looking over us because there were so many incidents. You know, we got bombed in five months, 220 times, and nobody got hurt. It was a, there was actually decent people that walked up there. Like, did any of you sold Mister Mister? Any of you guys get hurt? No, no one got hurt. And they're like, oh, inshallah, you know, such as God or whatever it was, and, and thank Allah that yeah. And you actually believe? I mean, I'm convinced of it. There's something like I I was like you know a Christian, like a practicing Christian at the time, and uh, and I said that you know I didn't say directly it was that you know God or anything, but there was something. Out there, I really, you know, there's always suspicion when you have faith in in, in anything. But I truly learned that day that there was spirits of God would us. And a, a lot of soldiers talk about that, or Marines and and military guys. And and, and I think that's a important part of recovery is reconnecting with whatever you think that is, because it was just it was amazing. I can tell you, incident, and you probably too, incident after incident. That's guy. And,
1: well, I mean, we we did lose some at that one, but the amount. We should have lost compared to what we didn't or what we did. It's just like, Oh my God. It's like, cause my first mission in Afghanistan, we were running out of a village because we're taking fire from a mountaintop that we couldn't see and bullets pinging all around us. Nobody got hit. It's like, it's just like, that was our first mission in Afghanistan in 2010, 11. And it's like, hmm, like we didn't have a choice. Like you don't know where they're at. They're just, they're just throwing fire or bullets at you. They're pinging around you, so we just bound backwards and it's just like, we don't, there's no, nothing else you can do. You can't just sit there and try to fight well,
0: them. You're like, no, no
1: nobody. Yeah, I know, we're no, sitting sort of run, there sort of running out and I'm like, man, this is tiring. And I'm hearing ting, ting all around me. It's like, fuck, this all hit me. And we call we did a call for fire mission and the call for fire mission my sister did, we didn't, we didn't know, so we we're just guessing. Ended up being 500 meters off, which is, you know, half a click. And somehow it landed on the people shooting at us, just magically. And all of a sudden the fire stopped, and we still got out of there. Of course, we didn't know if they're gonna come back or there's more. But it's like, and in Afghanistan it's different than Iraq because Afghanistan they have a whole military structure the Taliban do, where they have commanders and all the way down to the plebes. And when they do a BDA battle damage assessment at the end of each battle, and we we could chime in on that. So that's how we knew they they died. Well. When that person or the group doesn't chime in anymore and check in, you know, they're dead. So that's how we f- figured out that we actually got them or not. So and that's how it was. it was. When they did a BDA, they didn't respond yeah. anymore and they would try over and over and over again. And then of course we get further traffic down the road about, Hey, such and such died, but yeah, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But, um, so what is it? What do you do now exactly? Uh, I know after you got out
0: and, well, yeah, let's go with that, because I, I think it's important because everything builds on it, is, uh So I called for my own intervention, and I knew there was something was wrong. I saw him on the dock, and one of my best friends, my neighbor, and my Army mentor that went on both deployments, he set me up on the team. It was just all the success I, I attribute to him, he was a sergeant and my neighbor and a community leader of veterans. He killed himself. Mm-hmm. And this guy was the toughest guy I've ever met in my life, tougher than any Marine I ever met. I never saw the guy eat. I never saw the guy drink water. All he would walk around was with a cigarette in his hand and a cup of coffee. His name was Mike Scalacci, committed suicide. He did it at the armory. He was working full time with the guard at the time. And, uh, and, uh, I found out that's when everything started online. So I decided to go public because I mm-hmm. knew if I, my mentor, the toughest guy I've met in my life took his own life. I said, I'm not the only one suffering. And then I didn't feel alone anymore. And so I went to them, and, like, publicly, I said, hey, you know, Commander, I need to talk to my guys. And I called a lot of them. I said, man, I'm checking out. And then they they put in my paperwork to retire me. But because my records were scattered all over the place, it took them five years to retire because so you go and look at the paperwork. So your retirement package for an MED, it was a medical evaluation board for retirement. Mm-hmm. And you're not, as usually, you know, yeah. about an inch thick because you got all your records in that. Mine was almost five inches thick. So what that leads to what I'm doing is is um, from about 2012 as I was recovering, I knew that once I was I had a great great counselor. I went to the vet center, but the guy Bill Moore took me to the vet center, and um, I'd gone to the counseling at the VA with all these groups, the regular groups, and I was, no oh, man, I gotta be around combat vets. And then he said the vet center does just combat vets, which I highly recommend for any combat veteran. It's a little bit different perspective, but everyone around is a combat veteran. And I had a counselor that told me that my mind was lying to me, that was actually worth it, that I was actually an amazing person. And another line that she told me was, I said, I want to crush this demon, that this person that I became that's so angry and can destroy anything. She says, no, Mike, you just got to learn to control them because someday you're going to need them again. I was like, wow, just a different way of looking at it. And then what it is, I kind of documented everything I did. I got on my motorcycle and I I rode for about up to South Dakota. I went on a reservation. I was so desperate to put my life back together that I tried everything. Tambourine circles, you know, everything, acupuncture. I tried it all. And I kind of got stuck on and I read some books too. I kind of got stuck on um uh meditation. If I was to say anything, meditation is what calmed my mind out so I could relax, and I could breathe, and I could heal. Um, And I documented everything. Because I knew I would be – the Marines transformed me. The Army transformed me. And I said, I'm going through another transition in my life. I'm going to be transformed again. Who will I become? I don't know. But he's going to be amazing. He's going to use all this pain, suffering, and knowledge that I've learned through my whole life, and I'm going to become a different person. But so I get to choose who they are. I'm not dictated by any else external things. And then I ran into another thing is, is I couldn't work anymore. I had um, I had the tremors, the PTSD tremors, and I couldn't work my job anymore. And so I was unemployed. I had no VA comp. I had nothing for two years. So I lost everything financially. I was went out for foreclosure, uh, you know auction, and I was pretty much homeless again and uh luckily, I got a great community. one of the guys said, "Hey, I'm thinking about going to live over here. You can come and live in the basement in the little studio off the house was it was on thirty four acres, and that was great, and it was a good buddy of mine, and he he knew I was healing. He, still this day he looks after me and like his i mean he's thirty something and I'm fifty three. But he looks after me. He's a really good he's my workout partner now because we're now rebuilding ourselves financially and re- rebuilding our bodies. So my body's pretty much like yours is too because you but it's destroyed. You guys jumped out of planes, which I think is insane. Um helicopters. I just Yeah I just I jumped around like a maniac and I used to do uh, long distance running too. Mm-hmm. So ouch. But doing the notes I went around the country on my motorcycle, and I interviewed every vet that I could and visited some old friends from the Marine Corps, and I said, this is what's happening to me. And I, I listened to what they wanted, and I took out a business approach to veteran because there was a lot of people that tried to help me and organizations, but they, I said, this is way off base. You know, it just some didn't feel right. So them clicked. Man, this is a great great thing. And I started collaborating with them, a lot of the nonprofits because they didn't talk to each other.
1: Yeah, so, they, they really didn't.
0: Yeah, there's a note. I noted that in. And then I asked the veterans, what do you do? And they said, what do you need? See, that's the thing in business. You find the fill, you, you find a uh, thinking uh, hole, and you fill it. It's in the military, too. So what I found out was there was a great disconnect between the person that needs services and the services that are provided. Nonprofits in the VA don't advertise. So how is the vet supposed to know? So before it was even an organization is I would go around and say, bro, what do you need? I need a hug. I hop on my bike and go 3,000 miles to his house, pull up and go, mom, you're here? I said, yeah, you matter to me. I said, I've already buried another body of mine ended up killing himself too. The ranger that I do, one of the toughest guys i ever met in my life. Took his life. So he did. And I, I I said, yeah, because you matter to me because I'm tired of going to funerals. I said, there's no reason for it. And knock on wood, in my group, you end up having a group of 600, most of us do, military. We haven't had, um, You've only had one suicide in 10 years. When you have, you see some of these units, especially these uh, high-speed units, they'll, the 50% suicide rate, some of those, with attempts and successes, I mean, it's pretty high. So there's a big disconnect there, and I took that note, and I just can't take on notes, asking guys what they needed. And then I found out that um it basically comes down, uh, did you get my transition guide yet that I sent it to you?
1: No, I, I don't think you sent it to me yet. Okay, so this you is... You might have.
0: Look, see if this stays... Am I still on it? Yep. Okay. So what it is, I took notes, and I took, like, kind of an that approach to it, and I came up with these six, basically six areas that... And I've been doing it for about... So I've been doing this about six years now, and I've had the guy written down what I did. Anyway, there's a guy named Dave Belchick. He said, Mike, you helping all these vets? I said, yeah. And he says, well, you need to start a nonprofit, and you need to write down what you did. So I started to write down the steps that I go through. And he was, he re-inspired me. And so it kind of goes, comes down to like this. Let me get my notes up here. Yeah. And, and I can go into on each one in depth, do a whole, like I'm going to do classes on each one of those. They're coming out probably, probably this winter. When next winter coming around, I'm going to have actually classes, YouTube videos you can sign up for. So what it basically comes down to is the first thing is you have to learn what self-care is. Yep. Okay. And there's a lot of misnomers are really what, if you ask a, a random person or a random vet, especially what is self-care, they go, oh, I don't know. They're never taught. Um, education, educating yourself. You got to learn if you have a condition, whether it's ALS or you have PTSD or whatever, you need to study it like it's an MLS school. You really need to understand it. And like, even so down as what PTSD is I learned how the brain functions differently and it helped me to understand how it works. You know, the third is, is, is as a civilian out of the military, whether you have PTSD or not, is there's really no mentorship for veterans. So the, that's the other part of connecting nonprofits together. Mentorship and education are the keys to what vetunite.org does. Mentorship is you got to hook with another veteran or anyone with any task. You find someone that's accomplished the task and then you work with them, like you guys are doing with the PR. And you, you're lucky you have this person who's very generous, and they're going to give you all their time, and there's people out there that will do that. There's no one like that for veterans. That's why our model is unique. The other thing, too, is I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to step on any other the nonprofit's toes. I want to work hand-in-hand hand with them. So if you've got a program and you're dealing with vets, you know, you're doing equine therapy, you're doing this or that, I want to be able to say, okay, you can use my modules and plug them in to help your vets that are struggling, or even if they just do it, Okay. That's number third is mentorship. The fourth is peer support. You have to be around like minded people. A lot of vets get isolated. They might be in the community as a few vets, but you need a vet that understands exactly what you have. If you have PTSD or you've got ALS, you need a vet with the what you're dealing with. And also to one you and that vet, at least one, the more the better. Because civilians the civilian world Unless they're really patriotic, they don't really have the same mindset that we do, because we've provided them with a first-class society that's really difficult. They're they're separated from a lot of the stuff that we've experienced, which has made us actually better and think differently. No matter what political spectrum you are, we know that there are bad people in the world. Is one example, the bad people in this world, and, and there's nothing you can do to those people but destroy them. That's just one example, and. A lot of civilians go. Oh my God, we just, you know peace, love, and happiness. And I say, yeah, well, that's great in utopia, but that ain't the real world. Eighty percent of the people uh, on the world are worrying at that day. You know, you're worrying about what, what, what flavor of coffee you are getting at Starbucks, and they're worrying about finding food. You know, and, you know, surviving mm-hmm. from that in that month, and that just changes you. And it's not a bad thing. It's great perspective. So that's one thing. And the uh, number, step five is um, service to others. There is no way for you to grow. And become and transform into who you're supposed to be if you don't give back to other people. It's in our human nature to do that, and it, it actually what I call it is it's it's fuel for your soul. You were in a society in a, in a society in a community that they were actually giving all the time. Our job was to protect people. Everyone goes, oh, you know, oh, I'm you go, and all these guys you beat up, and then you want all these things out of the video game or a movie, you know, and then, and then there's always going, did you ever kill anybody? And I, said, and I just look at them now, and I'm so grateful. I just said, I saved a lot of lives, whether it was the guy next to me or the civilians or whatever. You know, even in our uh, rules of engagement, you know, life, limb or eyesight or rape, you were intervening. You could take action against the other perpetrator. So yep. our rules of engagement there were like, protect the civilians. That's our like, job. You know, we're trying to protect the whole country, you know. It's not this uh, colonization All right, and go ahead. Yeah, and the, the last the step six is to develop a new purpose. So I had read enough books prior to whatever was happening I mean, kind of like I was fortunate enough to know that I was transitioning to a different person. But I realized that I didn't really have a purpose for your life. See, the definition of success is a progressive realization of a worthwhile goal. So the goal that you're in the military is to protect people, okay, and you train for it constantly. So you're meeting the definition of success. And that gives you happiness and joy you get from that. When a lot of guys, when they get into, um, into the civilian world is, that part of theirs is gone. You're severed from the whole community and that society. So what you have to do is get in the process of developing a whole new purpose for yourself. It might be be the best freaking dad in the whole world, or start a PR company, or whatever it is. Is You know, you gotta do the grind, the day-to-day stuff will work, but you gotta develop a purpose, because we are the most highly trained people to ever exist on this planet. Okay? And we have gifts to offer to people, and some of it will be monetary back to us. So that's us yeah. develop purpose. My new purpose is, it, it, is to teach people what I've learned and change the way that we deal with transitioning veterans. And that—that's pretty much it. Empowering them.
1: And uh, how how can people get a hold of you? Like your social media profiles, and any of your handlers or your website, anything like that.
0: I'll give you um, the Facebook is a key one for me. It's Mike Damon. Um, if you do Godfather 20, I got the nickname of the Godfather, which is a great story on, on another time. Godfather 20 on Facebook is the best. If you don't have Facebook, you can, uh, ask, ask your kids, <laughs> ask the kids to do <laughs> it. Uh, uh, I have a link to my link tree if that's what you want to do, but I'm pretty much on all the platforms, TikTok and everything like that. Okay. So you, yeah. Just well, Mike I- Damon. Godfather. Go ahead.
1: You got it. And so this wraps up another episode of the Swan Dingo Files, uh, with my guest, Mike Damon. He is
0: a new godfather. Don't worry about the movie. He's better than the movie was. I promise you. So. Well, folks, that's all we have for today's episode of The Swandingo Files. I hope you've enjoyed this journey with your host Stephen Swanson as much as he enjoys recording it. Remember, transitioning from military life to civilian life is tough. But with a little bit of grit, a dash of humor, and a lot of determination, you can overcome any obstacle. So until next time, keep on trucking, and keep Swandingoing.